the book tour is basically over. We're now pushing into the 20th anniversary, which yeah. is exciting. But, you know, the book, but the book, in a way, like I feel like you do a full year on the book. Like yeah. you finish the book, and then the book comes out, and there's like until you cycle through all the seasons with it. There's, I mean, there's an initial giant push. Part of the reason we want to get the book out there is because we just want more people to read these beautiful stories that yeah. people had the heart to get up and tell. So that it's a matter of just trying to keep pushing out as much as you can so that people get their hands on it. What is a reading appearance like for a book like this? So we don't actually do readings with it. Um, we do just regular storytelling shows. Mm. Although sometimes one of the things with this that's been a little bit different is, is I've actually been going out and I've done a couple of keynotes, you know, and just talk about how we put the stories together and how we put the book yeah. together. So there's been that extra component. We went to South by and did this really mm-hmm. fun thing there that was a little bit different. We discovered about a year ago that these scientists at UC Berkeley uh-huh. had spent the last six years putting studying people's brains and putting them through MRI machines while they listened to moth stories. And we found this out super, I think, I could, when, I could argue too casually, when they sent this little email just wanting permission for some of the clips. And we were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and we freaked out. And it was just, it was really, it was like a big st- study that went into Nature Magazine, the final output. And so we ended up going to South By, and me and Alex, who is one of the scientists of the study, sat and talked about it. And it was really fun. So we've done some fun things like that, too, with this tour. What was the motivation behind choosing the moth specifically? I think because they were trying to find natural speech. Mm. And that can be really tricky. Like even like in a TED Talk, sometimes it's a little memorized. And they just wanted to find some way to just get people talking like they would talk to a friend and study how brains process information when it comes through that way. It might be the most unnatural environment possible, sitting in an MRI machine listening to to the moth. And where you can't move your head. Yeah. (laughs) So what, uh, what did they find? Well, it was interesting. So they were building on this study that was done at Princeton where they also, part of it, were listening to moth stories. And at that study, they discovered that people's brains sync up. So if if I tell a story in an Mm -hmm. MRI machine and then they put you in an MRI machine and have you listen to it, our brains will light up in the same places at the same point of the story. So literally when you're telling a story, you're syncing brains with a person, which that was pretty fascinating. Whereas if, if you listen to, say, the person tell the story in Russian, where you can't understand, the brains light up in very different places. So it's only when you're listening to a story and engaging. So that was pretty interesting. And so they were building on that. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was cool that they discovered is that we, that first of all, they kind of got rid of the whole left brain, right yeah, brain notion. That, yeah, that when people are listening to stories, both parts of the brain are very engaged. But one of the things is we store information clumps, sort of like an emotion and context. So say if somebody's saying, like, there's a house down the street we walk we walk by. That's one place of, part of your brain. Mm-hmm. But if you say my childhood home, where I played every afternoon in the yard mm-hmm. with my dog Snuggles, that's the part of your brain that's like home and warm and mom and love. Yeah, you know. Whereas the in, so that's so they're able to sort of to, yeah. they're able to map the brain in a way based on how people process stories, which is really interesting. I mean, there's so much, a lot of their study had to do with semantics. I think that's the right word for that. So you did a joint presentation? You did workshops based around this? No, it was just the two of us in conversation. Okay, you didn't bring out an MRI machine? No, that would be amazing. But no, we were, and we played clips of the stories and talked about it and he showed some of the scans. It was very cool. I suspect that when you heard that, like you, you sort of get this, this is kind of the radio lab problem from the standpoint of like, you know, you want to go, not that radio lab, obviously not radio lab isn't pseudoscience, but you want to go into that and read meaning into these things, like read meaning into the, the import of what you do based on this amazing finding that people's brains are syncing up. 
Yeah. I mean, I think for us, it was just, I, we love that they scientifically yeah. prove something that I think we have suspected all yeah. along. That it's just really good way to directly connect with someone. Exactly. The moth is really interesting from the standpoint of, I mean, all of these stories that get up there, or certainly the bigger ones, are really well trained and, and you go through, you actually workshop these with people, you know, it goes, people, people go through stories several times before they actually get up on stage, on the big stage and present. Yeah, they do. So, I mean, we could talk you through the process okay. of what people go through. Sure. I mean, it's sort of interesting. So, we get on the phone with someone the first time and yeah. we don't, we might not know what story they're going to tell. Sometimes we do, like my friend will be like, you need to get blah, 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 yeah. to tell this. And so you have some sense. But sometimes you go on the phone and you might spend like an hour trying to just ask them a million questions until you land on the story that they would most want to tell at the bottom. So you find somebody who you feel would be a good storyteller yeah. and a good story to tell. Yeah. And it, sometimes it might be someone who wrote a memoir and we've read the yeah. book and we know that there's some stories in there. But sometimes it could just be that we hear that, you know, somebody overheard them talking at a party. They seemed amazing. Um, or we heard an interview with them. If there's someone a little bit more well-known, you could just tell from yeah. the interview. Sometimes people tell little stories and it's like, oh, what's, what, what's that person all about? How so, often do they come to you with a story that they think is a great story and would be a great moth story? And you're just like, eh, no, sorry, uh, not happening. Uh, pretty frequently. Pretty frequently. What are the common pitfalls? People will tell stories that are just very anecdotal, okay. and they might be funny and kind of crazy, yeah. but unless there's just some meaning or shift in okay. them or something, not that we want it to be an after-school special, yeah. but like the difference between a bar story, and like yeah. you just tell it a bar, and a moth story, is that usually people want to tell stories where, as a result of what happened to the story, there was some shift in their perspective. Yeah. It could be subtle. Okay. But that there's something there where they, they there's just a little bit more depth there. Bar, bar stories are, are they're kind of elongated jokes in a way, right? I mean, they're, they're based on real life happenings, but you know, you go through, you, you've got a very clear punchline at the end. It's true. But one of the things we discover, I often do ask people, like, what are the stories you end up repeating in bars? What are the stories that when your friends yeah. introduce you to their friends, they ask you to tell? What are the stories are when you first start dating somebody that you can't wait to tell them? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. what we find is those stories might be anecdotal, but often there's a reason we tell these stories yeah. over and over, that there's something bigger about you that that story tells if you just dig a little bit. But that, but we do ask them to dig, especially if you're on the main stage where it's like 10, 12 minutes. You yeah. really need more to sustain that much time. It's an incredible amount of time to stand up there and talk. It is. How closely memorized are they? Yeah, we try not to script. Yeah. I mean, we, we really discourage them from scripting it. Um, and the reason is because people then get so attached to the words and they get up there and they can fail to connect with the audience because yeah. they're so busy trying to just hit to the memorize, next paragraph yeah. and say the next thing. Yeah. We sometimes we jokingly call it head in the desk drawer syndrome. Like they're standing in front of a crowd, but they're really just picturing that sheet of paper in their purse that lists everything out or worst case where they wrote everything yeah. out. What we encourage people instead to do is bullet point it out. And then because you really want to have a map. You want to have a map in your brain of where you're going because otherwise you won't be able to finish in 12 minutes. Yeah. You know, 10, 12 minutes. But but to not actually memorize it, to just let it flow in between so that it comes out a little bit different every time and so it feels fresh. Um, we do encourage people to memorize their first line mm-hmm. because people get up there and they're so nervous. Yeah. And if they've just learned their first line or two, they just know what to do yeah. right when they get up there. And we encourage them to memorize their last line yeah. because then inevitably if they don't, ha- half the people will be like, well, I guess that's my story. And they sort of wander off the stage. <laughs> and we're like, no, nail your, you know, nail the ending like a gymnast, you know, yeah. like, like dismounting, like do it. Right. It's like, oh no. Yeah. And so if they know that last line, then towards the very end of the story yeah. they know that they're shooting to get to that last point is the first line a thesis statement not always but it sometimes can be yeah. i mean we have a lot of fun looking at first lines yeah 
When you're working with these people to do these stories, are, are how closely involved in the process? Are you actually developing the first and last lines with them? Um, I think that we help try to help them find yeah. the right first line for themselves. In, in their own voice. Yeah, and their starting point for them. Yeah. And because of what happens is when you sort of pull everything out, we might spend an hour talking to them sometimes. Yeah. I mean, really, it also could be an hour once a month for six months, and just depending on the person and how much time they want to put in. Usually when we start down the road with somebody, we're, you know, we're willing to put time into them to get there if mm-hmm. we think that there's something there. Sometimes when people come to us, they think they're ready to tell a story. This is a whole other tricky thing. And they're still processing it or they're still living it and they'll discover that and talking to us. So they kind of go wow. on living it. And then a couple like of years later, <laughs> yeah, well, it might land in a certain place and then they're suddenly ready to yeah. tell it. And we're, we're willing to like the, one of the great things about the moth being around 20 years is we can be in it for the long haul with somebody and like we can kind of go down the path. And if a great story comes out of it five years from now, that's totally worth it to us. I mean, we can't be on the phone with them every week, you know, like a therapist, but we certainly can check in with them and like sort of set an intention with them. Uh, that's an interesting bit of insight of realizing, feeling like you have a distance from a story and then realizing that you're, that you're still living it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't always happen, but it's interesting. It's actually one of a funny, one of the storytellers in the book, Cole Kasdan, her story is about having amnesia. She uh-huh. gets, she's just broken up with her boyfriend wow. and she just wants to forget everything. And she yeah. gets her wish because she gets hit over the head and oh, she no. has severe amnesia. So it's short term and long term. So she doesn't remember anything about who she is. But also, like, if you're in the room talking to her and you go out of the room to go to the bathroom, when you come back, they have to, she has to start all over. It's like a Gilligan's Island it's, episode. It totally is. And so she, at the time, she, she told the story years ago. And the story ended, the story really became about her reconnecting with her boyfriend. Yeah. You know, who is a stranger uh-huh. to her, who, like, comes over to sleep in yeah. her bed. And it's like, who are you? And it was fun, but it was really more about the amnesia. And her boyfriend came with her to the show. But the story just like we loved it, but it wasn't just it somehow just wasn't quite like there was like something missing. We couldn't put our fingers on it. This is before we had a radio show or podcast. And so when we but when we re-listened to it, we're like, there was just a lot there. We should just look, you know, check yeah. in with Cole. And it turns out <laughs> that she had actually broken up with that boyfriend. Uh-huh. But what was interesting was like part of the the real heart, there's a lot of humor in the story, yeah. but part of the real like trauma, if you will, in it is that she's like, Will I ever get myself back? And so by living out this relationship, it turns out you know, they had broken up. It, it would turn out there had been a reconciliation. They'd gotten back together. She had not remembered yeah. that. And then they lived out their relationship again and ended up breaking up in almost the exact same point they did originally. <laughs> and to her, this is where the story ends, it was a realization that she really was herself again because yeah. she'd made the same choice that she had made as yeah. old Cole. And so what was interesting is that we just didn't know when she was telling it the first time that she was still living it. And then once she was done and had really concluded it, and actually at the time she told it the second time, she was happily married to a different guy who was like, you know, they're both good guys, which is the second her current husband was more right for her. Yeah. You know, that she was really in a different place. And this time she really landed it and like she told it in five, ten cities. Like she, it was just such a hit with people because I think it was really ringing true. And the first one didn't quite ring true. And it's because she was like, and now everything's great with my boyfriend, but things weren't so, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, so that, interesting. That's insight that you don't get very often where clear if you've done the same thing the same exact way twice like that then probably you, you probably do the right thing for yourself exactly so yeah so we help pull everything out and then we help them we just help them figure out what the actual beats yeah. are for themselves and we're not there to impose anything on them we're just there to, for them to bounce things off of and help figure out what, what the story really is for them who were they are at the beginning yeah. who are they at the end we sometimes say like why do we care? But what we mean by that really is why do they care? Because yeah. if they can help us know why they care so much about it, why this story right now, then it's not going to be – it's going to be easier for them to 
show an audience why they care. And so we help them work that out. And then they practice it a bit with us. And we actually have a group rehearsal where all the storytellers to come together and tell their stories to each other and our team. Um, but it's not like at any point it's meant to be memorized. Like part of why we have them tell it a number of times is just because we want them to get really comfortable with it. Because then when they're on stage, they're going to feel confident that they know where they're going. And I kind of like, maybe counterintuitively, if you've worked on it and know where you're going, that allows you on stage to be a little loose with it, to mm-hmm. throw something in, to feel comfortable. Because you're not worried that you're going to lose your roadmap. Have you found any cases where it really does get better on stage once the person's actually up there that the story actually improves? Oh, it often, it almost always does. Really? Yeah. We, people sometimes when they get pulled into our process yeah. can't believe the difference between even the rehearsal, which is two days before, and the actual final performance. Because part of what the rehearsal is, is there is, you know, it can be very nerve wracking. We do it in a little conference room. It's like set up like a living room. So you're not on stage, yeah. you know, and you're and like to tell your story in front of a room full of people at two o'clock on the Tuesday afternoon can be very awkward. And, but we find that once they get through that, mm-hmm. that, um, th- you know, telling it in front of 900 people at Cooper Union a few weeks later, it just feels like a total treat, you know, because it's anonymous. They can't see the people. The you make it as awkward face. as humanly <laughs> possible. Well, part of it, we just find that people are going to stumble where they would have stumbled. Yeah. And then they're going to be able to see wh- what they still need to work on. Yeah. And it gives them that chance, because like, usually there's 24 hours to 48 in between to do that final, you know, push on it. And sometimes the stories really can get created in rehearsal because, you know, they'll get in there and they'll, when they have to tell it in front of a whole group, they'll see something fresh in it. And so usually stories come pretty far from rehearsal to the punch. It's rare that a rehearsal, every now and then we'll just turn to each other after rehearsal when everyone's gone and just go, well, the only question is, can they do it again? Yeah. You know, like, pray. Yeah. There's usually some last little push to make at that point. Ner- nerves do strange things to you, though. I mean, yeah. it can completely. I'm sure that every single person has gotten some degree of stage fright at some point, and that can that can completely derail you. It can. It's actually the thing that makes me most sad that happens at the moth yeah. is if somebody gets there. A little nerves is good because yeah. a little nerves it's like respect adrenaline for the audience. And, a little adrenaline. Yeah. It shows you care. So you want a little nerves, um, but too much nerves. What always makes me sad. I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone in the press about this, but the last thing I always say to a storyteller before they go on stage is I remind them to have fun on stage. Yeah. Because most of the time, if they've gotten this far in the moth process, they've done the work, they know their story, it's their story. And so they're always afraid they're going to forget it. You're not going to forget it happened to you. So just like go up there and try to have a good time on stage because we find if they're having a good time, they just, again, counterintuitively, automatically will remember all the best parts. And so the one, the thing that, Heart, I can almost like name every time it's happened. My great heartbreaks as a director is this, if the person can't get past their nerves and I can just see, even though they're getting through the story and doing a fine job and the crowd yeah. is with them, I can see they're tortured and I can see that they have not, they don't push past the moth. Moth audiences are the best audience yeah. in the world. Yeah. They show up, they're supportive. They love you. All they want is for you to be your most authentic self and for you to just show up and be real in front of them. And if you can do that, they're going to be on your side. And so there's just the warmth of an audience like that will just hold you up. And it's heartbreaking if someone is so nervous that they don't allow themselves to tap into that and have that experience. Does it ever just sort of snap on after that first laughter or applause break? It usually does. Usually they walk out there super nervous. This is why we memorize the first line. Yeah. Then you just see this kind of light go off when that just rush of love from the audience pours at them. Sometimes if it's a very serious story, we'll let somebody like throw in a little joke at the top just to get that little laugh, just to get that little bubble of love. Um, And it lifts them up. And then usually they are just off. And like the person could be on stage five minutes before basically like, I hate myself. I hate you. Why did I get talked into this? I want to leave. And then 
inevitably they walk off and say, when can I do it again? Because it's, it's that notion of like, oh, I'm not opening for Metallica. These are people who came to watch somebody <laughs> stand on stage and tell a story. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah. But it's also such a beautiful process yeah. if you give yourself over to it. How long did it take to refine that process? I mean, years. We're still refining okay. it. Like, all the time. Like, you, sound, like... you seem like you've got a pretty good model in place at this point. Well, we have a model. Of, we have, like, the basics. Like, yeah. this is how we do it. But I will also say I'm one of many directors. I mean, I was, like, the, the, directing by myself up until about wow. seven, eight years ago. Yeah. But now, thank God, we have a whole team of two people who do it. Partly because we do a lot more shows now. But also, it's just nice to have different voices. You know, the directors. All of our directors are going to be drawn to different stories. And so, it just brings out. It's just more interesting for the moth audience to have more people choosing. Um, I mean, I'm a part of all of it. Mm-hmm. But there's just a lot of people directing. And everyone has their own process. I'm talking to you about mine. Yeah. But it's. But we're fairly. There are some consistencies. Sure. And that's what I'm touching on. But I think we're always. I think what's exciting for us. A lot of us have been doing this a long time. Like many of our senior staff have been at the moth either as volunteers or on staff for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we're always like trying to shake things up, keep things interesting for us. And we're always, I think, discovering new things or new like little rules sounds too tough. But we're like, you know, there's a truth about this. And like, this is the thing that sometimes happens. And we're all like, yeah. And so I feel like we're constantly discovering things like that. And that's part of what keeps it fun for us. There's definitely been a big boost in terms of all of these different storytelling outlets out there. And I think that uh, clearly the moth played a really large role in that. But when you came along, was there a template in place? Was there, you know, were, were you working on a foundation of this sort of storytelling as an existing art form that you could draw upon? Well, there was really just, I mean, of course, there's like, there's a long sure. tradition of sure. like there's traditional. Sure, sure, yeah. oral storytelling is like been around, around longer the than the moth. But as far Let's as like, get that out of the way. It's really yeah. like moth style storytelling, right? This is what mm-hmm. I think that George, our founder, did that yeah. was fresh, was this idea of taking bar stories, dinner party stories, and yeah. putting them on stage and calling it what I think it can be, which is art. Yeah. Um, that was what was a little bit different, like this personal storytelling, is what they sometimes call it, as opposed and to. The, and, and the clear difference between, uh, you know, a moth story and like a TED talk, for example. Right, which is very different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's ways in which we intersect. Like, sure. Ted can sometimes get a little story. All my favorite TED Talks, they get yeah. a little more story. But and those seem pretty strictly structured. They, they are. And their structures are different from ours. And it's actually interesting. One of the fun things is when someone does a TED Talk and a moth story about similar topics. And you can just see how the structure pulls you through in a different way. Yeah. Um, it's always interesting working with people after they've done a TED Talk. Like, I was working with Suki Kim is another person whose stories in our book. And she went undercover in North Korea. Mm risk her life really to go in and try to discover what was really going on there with this yeah. gorgeous book about it and she had been like nervous about doing the moth because she'd done a TED talk and she didn't want to repeat it but at this time I, I wanted her to talk about going undercover in North sure. Korea sure. and so we ended up finding a structure that was different from the, what, the way TED structured it and it touched on some of the same elements yeah. but had a little bit of a different arc and so it was really for the challenge that she was like I do not want to repeat this material because it's actually been a very popular TED talk and I also never want to be copying TED like God forbid yeah. you know we love them there are friends so it was really fun having that challenge of trying to take this, the same rough material and structure it in a way that was fresh for her also because she was had been telling going around talking about it for so long by the time we got to her i wonder if it's similar to writing as a feature for a magazine or doing the way i assume they would structure like a, this american life story from the standpoint of really so you've got this big rock story and then you have to kind of find a focus and maybe build out from there. Like find like an interesting yeah. visual. Like in the North Korea story, I'm sure there was some super interesting visual that she saw that could like serve as a foundation to build this story on. I think that's true. I mean, I can't now. I can't quite remember the plot of yeah. the TED Talk. I know one of the things that she did there was there's a thing in the 
in the book, like, and in her life where she had her students, because she went in as a teacher, mm -hmm. and she was teaching, like, the students of the children of the most elite high oh, wow. up in North Korea. Yeah. And so she had them write her letters because she was teaching them English, and so she read a lot of the letters, and it was really beautiful. Um, and so there's a lot of a focus on her relationship with the students. And I can't remember if this is in the TED Talk, but what we one of the things that we pulled out was why she was so driven to do this. Mm. And part of it was motivated because um, when her, mo her mom had been a baby when Korea was split. And so her mother, with her grandmother with her mother, who was like two years old, I think, on her lap with yeah. the kids, ran, like raced, and, and kind of got behind the, sort of what would be the wall between North and South Korea. Yeah. And her, old, her uncle, who was 16 at the time, they were like, women and children first. He said, I'll see you in the next town. And they never saw him again. So she grew up with this heartbroken grandmother, always pining for her child. And I think and with this whole family that had been horribly disrupted by this split. And but it was supposed to be temporary. And it's still ongoing. And that, that her, whatever happened to her uncle, they never knew. And I think this drove, so that became a driving force mm -hmm. is like Suki's uncle. And then her working with these 16 year old boys, you heard the age he was when he disappeared, who Suki, of course, never knew. And then, like, this, the story ends with her wondering if, you know, if she were, could, you know, if she were to meet her uncle again, would he be the same boy that jumped off that truck? She's got a really obviously this is a case of a story where she's got a really clear idea of what her motivation was to do that uh, later in life. But, yeah. You know, again, getting this back to this idea of therapy, I, I have to imagine <laughs> that if you get on a phone with somebody for an hour and talk about a fairly personal aspect of their life, that they may have some interesting realizations during the course of that that hadn't really occurred to them before until they really sat down and talked to somebody about it. I think that's true. I mean, that's part of the joy of it. I mean, we're obviously not therapists. Sure. We're very mindful of that sometimes. Yeah. Um, we're aware there's a, we have a guy who is a, who is a therapist yeah. who we occasionally reach out to, to guide us. Cause we never want to, you know, we just want to be really responsible yeah. when you're talking to people. But I mean, there definitely people do have breakthroughs that there's something about like forcing yourself to put a narrative structure on your life. Like to say, I was here mm -hmm. and I was here and this is why I did that. It will push you into, you know, cause and effect. Yeah. This is what I imagine the realization of figuring out that you're like an alcoholic is like. Is like, oh, yeah, no, all of these bad things that are happening in my life, I've been the cause of most of them. Right. No, it's true. And that, that happens like where people yeah. are like, oh, but it also can create great agency for them. Yeah. Like when they suddenly can see that they had more choices than they realized yeah, in their yeah. life that can be very empowering for people also though it can be the opposite where people get in <laughs> and have been blaming themselves for something for a long time mm. and then when they really start to put a story together it just becomes totally obvious yeah. that none of what happened was their fault you know so that's all that, i mean that's more of a therapeutic like typical right through like you're blaming yourself and it really isn't but there's it's it's just a really interesting process and it's different for everyone who does it i think even though we've had yeah, we do about 120 original huh. stories a year on the main stage. And then, of course, there's like the slams and community and educate. We have a lot of programs that produce, you know, it's a thousands of stories a year. But the main stage is what we're talking about, where we actually yeah. pick the people out and work with them one on one. The idea of beginning and ending is really interesting when you're talking about your own life, right? Yeah. I mean, sure, some things in life do come to an end and lives do come to an end, but there's no clear delineation in life the way you would like there to be in a narrative yeah i think that's true i mean one of the things we always do the storytellers is like we don't want your stories to wrap up in a bow yeah you know life is not that neat life rarely 
ends in a really clean way. And yeah. I think, to be honest, if I were just telling ourselves, we went through a little bit of a period where the stories were a little too wrapped up in a bow. They were a little too neat. And we got that feedback from our community, and we're yeah. like, oh, my God, we agree. Like, I, the, our first book that we did three years ago, there was a the only the the Guardian wrote a review, and they mostly loved it. But there was like it was like very British, like oh these Americans and their like realization and sentiment at the sure. end. And I was like, oh god, I think that might be true. Americans and their happy And that endings, was one yeah. of those things where yeah. we our team talked and we're like, yeah, let's like we can pull back from that a little. Like we can like, we, things can maybe end in a little bit more of a question. I mean, not that we want cliffhangers because that's annoying for the audience, but there can be subtlety to the ending. It doesn't like things don't things don't need to be too neat. Did you find that to some degree that was an outgrowth of becoming more popular? A, a radio show, when you are broadcasting something on the radio, it's nice if you can really package it for people. Yeah, it's true. But I think there's a there's a way to land something yeah. in a feeling and emotion, but without having it be like, and then I figured out everything and everything forever yeah. was fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's more usually that everything forever was changed. Yeah. I think like Adam Gottnick, let me see if I can pull this out right. He wrote about it in the intro to the first book. He talks about how there's this notion in most great moth stories where you feel at the end of it, you say to yourself after listening to it, wow, nothing could have ever been the same for her again after that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's more that than, than everything was perfect and fine forever the end. I read an interview that, you, that I think you did right around the time of the first book and there, and there was a no, it was it was a piece that you wrote, and I think there were interviews with all of the contributors to the book, and he was one of them. And you know, he was really hard on himself for not knowing what the format was. Yeah, um, for <laughs> he's maybe too not hard on himself, by the, the way. But yeah, he, well, the first time he came, that we were so you know, yeah. young. I think that was two thousand two when Adam told his first story, and so we'd been around since ninety seven, but we were still fairly things were so fresh. And he didn't really know us. Honestly, that story was lovely that he told. Yeah. It was maybe a little stand-up because I think if he were sitting here, he'd be like, Catherine, tell the truth. Yeah. Um, like he got, he was a little bit too much going for comedy and not going for like the emotional heart of it. But I will say to his credit that years later, if he, after he told many other successful moth stories, we revisited that. And he did the whole story again, yeah. this time digging really deep and really going there. And it's just one of my favorite Adam Gottnick stories of all time. I wonder if there's something to be said for somebody who isn't super familiar with the, the format. Obviously, you still want them to go through the process with you. But is there a downside to a person coming in and knowing exactly what a moth story, whatever that is, is supposed to be? Well, I mean, sometimes we get on the phone with people and they just, they really don't get it. Like they think yeah. that they're just supposed to be telling jokes or, you know, it's a little more essay or like they, they just don't, they don't have to know what the concept is at I all. I totally, and I totally get the joke motivation. You know, for me, if I'm standing up in front of a crowd full of people, I don't have an instrument in my hand. Like that would certainly yeah. be my first motivation in order to really kind of engage the audience would just be to try to make them laugh. This is always what people, musicians, by the way, it's like, can I just hold my guitar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I won't play it, but can I just hold it? <laughs> just like, like a security blanket? Yeah, Roseanne Cash was just like, That's I don't funny. usually stand on stage without a guitar. Yeah. I'm like, you'll be fine. She was totally brilliant. That's but so yeah. funny. But yeah, we've had that. That's like, often the storyteller, new musician, nego yeah. storytellers will try to negotiate yeah. their instrument. But yeah, I mean, I do think I think that there is this instinct that people just want to go for the comedy. But that's actually one of the only ways you can bomb at the moth. I mean, not by being funny, because like yeah. many really funny people tell stories. But the one way you can really bomb at the moth is to get up there and just put on a show, to put on a performance, air quote, you know, yeah. around, to get up there. Like sometimes one person show people, you have know, done one person shows struggle with the moth. Because they're just used to coming out and just coming at the crowd, and I'm doing my yeah. bit. And if the moth crowd thinks that you're there doing a bit, well, first of all, 
Meg Bowles, who's one of our directors, who's amazing, she always says, if you get up there and signal to the audience that you are about to do a performance for them, they suddenly shift, and instead of treating you like a person, they're going to treat you like a performer. And that's a very different kind of judgment and feeling than if you're just up there, a person being yourself telling them a story. So it's tricky. So we always try. I mean, we want people to make jokes and be funny, but the comedy, the jokes need to be organic to the story and move the plot of the story along. They can't be jokes just for joke's sake. I mean, someone who does this brilliantly is Mike Birbiglia. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with That's his work, true, but he's course. like, in some ways, the ultimate master yeah. of someone whose jokes really move yeah. you through material in such an organic way. And nothing is there just for the sake of making a joke. It's all there to move his plot forward. I mean, it's really amazing. Somebody knows what people want out of a moth story. Can can that be an issue in telling the story again? And, and I think maybe this gets back to what you were talking about before, about the, the, the criticism that uh, some of the stories in the original book had about tying up too neatly, is there also a trap in maybe being too on brand? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a tricky thing. Like when you've, you've been successful in the sense that you know, you're out there more, people are listening, people will sometimes come to you and want to give you what they think you want. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that can be really tricky. Because yeah. um, it's like, no, like, you know, just tell us who you are. Because yeah, every story, person's story is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. You know, there's like, there's like sort of formulas that people get. You see this at the slams, you know, that's our open mic story yeah, slam yeah. series where I don't want to ever be critical of storytellers. Just people come and pour their hearts at the slam. Yeah. But you see with some of the people who are tried and true and come back a lot that they'll do this thing like start in the action, in the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, jerk back. You know, yeah. Go back into time. Yeah. Okay. come <laughs> Record scratch. Yeah. And but you're wondering how I got bit. into this. Right. <laughs> you know, to, yeah. I am standing. Okay. <laughs> and so we're like, yeah. everyone, you know, okay, let's shake this up. And so yeah. now that's one of those, that's become one of those with the directors where it's like we if it's going to be a thing where we start in the action and then flash back yeah. to give the motivation that really has to be called for that has so, to be the way that this story needs to be told because because otherwise we're just like we can't yeah. we have to because sometimes the best way to tell a story is just linear yeah. but people always want to have some clever for you know cle- clever structure and like sometimes you need a clever structure yeah. but not always you know so you've definitely isolated a lot of the tropes that people fall into pretty quickly well we try to because we have to stay on top of yeah. it or else we're going to become a parody of ourselves yeah I mean, that's why i appreciate your question yeah. you know it's like um i think we think about this all the time is you know, how do we keep it fresh how do we i mean i remember years ago um, I heard Ira Glass and some of those guys from This American Life talking about how there were types of stories that they felt they that had been told. Yeah. And there were whole categories of stories that they didn't always consider. And I yeah. know I've also heard that StoryCorps has this too, like because just some of our staff mm-hmm. have worked there that's like, oh, it's this type of story, it's that type of story. And I was like, gosh, there's always a fresh way to tell a story, really, and then cut to 10 years later. Yeah. We're like, oh, maybe not, maybe, you know. So there's some categories of stories that are so important to the person that lived them, but that can be very hard to make fresh. Yeah. And so we never say never, because there's always a brand new way to tell an X type of story. But there now are some categories of stories where it really has to be a fresh take for us to put it out there, just because there's only so many stories we can put out in the world and we want to try to put stories out that have a fresh perspective on life. Is part of getting away from, again, this idea of, of tying it up really n- neatly at the ending, I, I imagine the way you work against that is is actually in the final line, right? You, you need to make sure that it's not just a, a the end stamp on the story. Right, just too pat. Yeah. Like, you don't ever think, you want it to be so neat that it just seems unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Every now and then life does end in a really sure. pat way, but it's yeah. unusual, right? <laughs> 
So when you sit down and you talk to somebody for an hour, you know, you find this story that they want to tell. You're super into it. It's a really great story. It's really compelling. This is like the novelist question. Like, how the hell do you figure out what the beginning and the ends are? Well, one of the things I have, I, I don't know if the other directors have never discussed this with them, but I feel like if you can't find the ending, then that means that there's a fundamental flaw in the story. Uh, like, if you can't hit that ending, yeah. then that means that there's something wrong with the beginning that and the, the middle. the story's maybe not over. Yeah, right. Or, like, there's just some yeah. that you really haven't found it yet if you can't okay. find the ending. Um, so the story isn't quite there. Yeah. So in some ways, you can almost, like, start with the ending and back up. Um, but figuring where to start, I mean, a lot of it is, like, you want to figure out what the heart of the story is. Like, in some ways, you want to figure out what the middle like what it's really about for them. And then you want to just make sure that all the details in the story support that arc. It's also like just what I was saying with the joke support. Yeah. It's also all the details, picking the right details. And usually when we're trying to find those details, you'll find the natural beginning. So the middle That's is... Right, it's a little vague. No, no, no. Like so, just, so, yeah. so the middle is, <laughs> is the middle of the climax? Is the middle just sort of the heart of the story? It's is like the, the middle... heart of the story. Like okay. what, the, what the problem... And like, Or like if you were describing the story to somebody in a sentence, it would be from the middle of the story. Exactly. Oh. Like sometimes like most of the stories to be great monsters, there has to be some tension in the story. But it doesn't have to be like a horrible crisis. Yeah. But it could be like a problem you had that was solved. It could be... Um, a decision you need to make. Like, that's often a powerful one. It's like, for better or for worse, like trying to make a decision. Um, it's, I'm trying to think, there's like other examples where they bring some tension. And if you can figure out that, like what the center question in yeah. the story is, because usually if there's some question in it, from there you can build out the rest of it. How did you get into all of this? Uh, well, I was, I was doing film and television, yeah. and I'd always wanted to be a filmmaker since I was a little girl. I grew up in rural Alabama yeah. and I think I just saw films. So I'm like, that's the only art I see. So yeah. there's that or choir, you know? So, and I always like wanted to be in the arts. And so I, I went, you know, graduated from college and did film and did TV. And I, there was just something missing in it. Like I was having a really good time throughout my twenties, but I hit this crisis <laughs> at the end of my twenties. Well, I discovered with, with film that yeah. I was like, I don't know. I found out that I don't really love being on sets that much. It's a little stressful. Yeah. And I, then I would get a little bored in editing rooms. I'm like, that's the life is going from the set into the editing And, and also kind of the lack of control. It spirals out pretty quickly, right? When you're working with a huge. That's a whole other aside. Yeah. Like is that one of the things I realized is that I, I was, I hated, I don't think I had the words for this at the time, yeah. but that how many people it took to tell a story, yeah, yeah, how yeah. many people have to be in the yeah. room. And here's the, the tragedy is I realized the more successful I got, the more people that were going to be in the room. So you know, the thing I hated most about it was going to get worse and worse and worse the more successful yeah, I was. More, more people, but but at the end of the day, I mean, it is it is essentially kind of a one-on-one experience as they're working through this. Exactly. Yeah. So then the moth, it just like, I came, someone brought me to the moth. So, yeah. okay, so in the middle of my crisis, which I refer to this now, I was, it was something like late 20s, early 30s. Quarter and I was life, kind of, I think it's called. Yeah, quarter life. Yeah. I was definitely doing that, where I was like, I, I refer to it looking back as like that my, is that, is this all there is stage? Yeah. <laughs> and I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And in the midst, I was like, well, maybe I'll be a documentary filmmaker. Like, I suddenly wanted things that were more real. And um, I was considering that. And then someone brought me to The Moth. And I was just instantly huh. fell madly in love with it. It was 2000. I'd just moved to New York. It had yeah. been around for two and a half years. And I loved that it was just a single person on stage, very simple mic, soft, like a single spot, the simplest thing. And you were hearing that story from the person who lived it. And I think even early on, I was aware there was a director, there was a producer, there were some people involved in it, but compared to, you know, 30 people in a film set, and that's an indie film sometimes, it was so minimal, and I loved it, and I just became addicted and started coming all the time. And um, eventually, I told a story in one of our slams, and then 
was in the first Grand Slam, and as it was, which is like where everybody wins a previous slam, yeah. you get to compete. And um, it was very terrifying because it was like enough that I'd put my name in the hat at the slam. There was no Grand Slam at the time because it was like the first year of the slams, and they're like, "We're going to do a Grand Slam." I was like, "No!" Wait, so you won your first uh, slam? I did. Wow. The, uh, I will say, with yeah. all due respect to everyone else who was in that show, I sure. should look back and see who was. In the old days, it was much easier. There sure. wouldn't be enough names in the hat. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't now. Where there's 50 people in the hat, and everybody's won before, and it's like tough. And, like and everyone's it's like amazing. The SATs, you get points for signing your name. Exactly. That's how it was <laughs> back then, and so um, it, it was like because this was like really like the first few months of the yeah. slam that I did it, and so. And it was two years old, you said? Well, the slams were newer. Yeah. Like, this but, was the first the year. Moth. The moth was like two and a half years old. Yeah. And they had, and the slams were, I think the time I put my name in the hat that first night were less than six months old. I don't think I realized it at the time that the slams were so new. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, so I was like the last name pick that helps. And I won. I actually tied for first place, I should say, with my friend Jane, who was still my friend, who I met that night. Um, and then we were in the first Grand Slam together. And then by doing the Grand Slam, I got to know the staff a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and then I started volunteering for, there was a community program and they were doing a community show for homeless women. And they asked me to come tell my story there. And that was really fun. And then I think it was like the wild west back then. Some of the instructors didn't show up and I felt bad. So I was like, I'll stay and help. You know, I didn't know, but I was just like, I'll help you out. And so I became a volunteer in the community program. And then I was, had just taken this job to go work at MTV which I wasn't that excited about. I was just a little old for, you know, it was like I was in my early 30s and it was like I probably cool, should have done it a while MTV. back. You know, I always, I loved MTV. Yeah. Like, you know, I was 11 years old or something when it went on the air. Yeah. It blew my mind. It, it always seemed like the dream gig. But by the time I finally got it, I was just maybe a little old, you know. Sure. Was this you know, like was the it, Total Request Live days? Y- yeah. Yeah. And I was, and so I was like, okay. And so I was excited about it, but also like, is this the right move? And I was supposed to start on September 12th, 2001. So I never actually started. God damn every New York story. Isn't it true? <laughs> every New York story comes back. I know. To that. I'm looking at Meryl's like you've probably heard me tell this so many times. But yeah. No, it's just it's so, like yes. it's like everybody everybody's like <laughs> Sorry, okay. pivotal things just happen to people like the day before or that or it was supposed to happen the day after. I know, it's totally crazy. Yeah. So that you know that show they were like, We're putting it off, you know, but don't hang on sure. just a minute and yeah, of the course greatest attack on uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we have to there's a pause yeah. on yeah. like this our our new show. That's you know charting you know hits on MTV yeah and um, people had other things to worry about in the world for a little y- while exactly yeah. and so I was actually you know, didn't have that much to do and so I ended up volunteering with the Red Cross downtown and I actually really loved the work but because it was like my joke about it but I it was a little bit mean but it's true is that you know one of the things I hate about the film world is everybody's just so it's like so important and uh and what I loved about the Red Cross is in some ways it was the same skill set. It was like production, moving people through, getting things done. And only, you know, my joke about it was that unlike the film world, it was always actually an emergency yeah. as opposed to these pretend yeah. emergencies. Yeah. There were real people who really needed help. And I come from a family of doctors, you know, generations. And I was like, maybe I could just take all my film skills and go work for the International Red Cross. And like, I'm just going to walk away from all of this art and because they because they offered me a job the red cross offered me a job that is su- that is such a like quarter life crisis thing to do too. isn't it it's like oh, i am not <laughs> making a difference in the world oh totally yeah so in the midst of trying to figure out what i wanted to do um the moth's first artistic director quit mm. and there were two employees and i got the email like kind of magically in the middle of the night 
my mom was sick and I was at home looking after her and I got this email at like one o'clock in the morning. I think it came in from AOL. <laughs> like that's the date. I forwarded the email to the other employee who I'd become close to at that point, just from working on these workshops with her and everything and said, whose job is open and how do I apply? Yeah. And got the job and best decision I ever made. I mean, it seemed crazy at the time because things were, there were just two of us. It was like, yeah. You know, but the show's already, people had like a huge following. People love them. You know, it was like a, it was so, it was so coming on, you're the really two of us. You know, I mean, I, I think what I loved about it was it applied a lot of the skills I had built up. Like I had done accounting on indie films. And so I could sit and like try to figure out the books. Yeah. And I was not afraid to cold call a headliner and try to get them to come tell a story or write a really great letter and fax it at the time, you know, try to get them to come. And, managing people and so it was just it felt so what I loved I think why it was so perfect for me at the time was it was still in the arts but it it had it was more meaningful than yeah. what I was going to be doing at least in the job I was going to take at MTV at the time meaningful and, and it sounds like you're like me that I get bored really quickly from a job if I have to do the same thing over and over again yeah and like that was one of the great things about this is like you know it's just every show was a little bit different yeah. and you know i knew leah Tao, who was running them all the time i loved her i knew i really respected her and to go work with someone who i respected so much i'd met george Josh green our founder a few times actually interviewed with him and leah and just thought he was so smart and loved what he you know had, had brought about into mm -hmm. the world and so i was just honored to join them it just felt really great to come to work every day doing something that i just fundamentally in my bones believed in was it sort of like joining a startup at the time i mean there were two people was there a sense that like maybe this might not be a job that's going to be around in a year i don't think we ever thought that yeah like i don't think that we could have done it if we didn't think it was going to go on and be a success like i don't think i've ever once thought the moth was going to go away but making that jump in i mean that that to me would be the big fear. It's been hard to live in New York City for a while. It keeps getting harder and harder. But definitely during that time frame of I'm making the leap into something now, there's some concern there. How, how stable of a job is this? Well, yeah, I definitely think that my parents were like, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. Storytelling? Well, yeah. storytelling was not a buzzword back then. Yeah. Like now it's such a thing. Because of you guys, really. But it was not, well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I definitely at the time people were like, what? For children? What? Um, I mean, it was known in New York a bit, but yeah. especially like where you know I'm from, the relatives in Alabama, yeah. they're like, what are you doing? I mean, they also, like, there's a great tradition of storytelling in the South, but they yeah. just didn't, the fact that this was a job was sort of funny. Although I have to say, like, I'm pretty immediately, my parents came up, they went to a show, they loved it and were yeah. really supportive. They, they got it. They did get it. Yeah. yeah. That's true. That's a good point. It's the sort of thing that you really have to kind of experience to know what's going on. Yeah. There wasn't a podcast then. No. Like, it was, like, easy. Like, the only way I could show my parents originally is, like, I flew home and I remember I had a VHS tape of a show that I press play and played for them. Yeah. We didn't I mean, even have yeah. CDs yet. No, no DVDs back then? No. There were definitely no DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, no giant laser disc. You could... <laughs> that would be awesome. What was your story? What was your first story that won you that slam? It was about accidentally driving one of my best friend's car off a very small cliff. Oh. From the from the passenger seat. He was inside. He parked in this mini mall with uh -huh. like a little like ten, eight foot, I would say, drop. I always try to figure out how, from the pictures, like how it seemed, yeah. of course, like 20 feet. But it's down. And I was seeing the passenger seat. He goes in to get coffee at 6 o'clock in the morning in my defense. We had not had coffee. And he let, left the keys in the car in case I wanted to listen to the radio. And the car was like standard. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I leaned over and turned the keys really, really hard, and it caused me, the car, to fly forward and off and, like, boom. Wow. And so I landed, like, hanging in my seatbelt with the butt of the car up in you the – Thelma and Louise. Yeah, I totally Thelma and Louise did <laughs> off the cliff. And then insanely just opened the door, unbuckled my seatbelt, and, like, fell out of the car yeah. onto the ground. And it was pouring rain. So I come running up, and, like, Alex's famous first words were, where's the car? Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a cop who arrived at the scene and said, who was driving the car at the time of the accident? And we had to say, no one, sir. Gravity. Yes. <laughs> Sir Isaac Newton. But, yeah. But that, that was definitely a story I had told a million times because it was so crazy. But, like, in making it a moth story, I focused. It was, like, somehow even then – on the fact that all I cared about was not concerned about my own well-being. Yeah. My primary concern in it was, will Alex be mad at me? Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't, by the way. He's a good guy if he's listening. Yeah, so, we're still friends. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty strong relationship that you yeah. guys are still friends that. after yes. driving his car off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> um, 15 years later, is is that a good story? Is that something if somebody had gotten on a phone with you and, and told you that, would you have pushed them in that direction? I don't think it's a main stage story. No. It's too anecdotal. I mean, there's a little bit. The, the real arc what of do you, it what is. What do you mean by, I mean, in this case, what do you mean by anecdotal? So it's just, there's not, it wasn't like, I wouldn't say that that story was like sort of a big turning point in my life sure. in any way. Yeah. I, I mean, it definitely in hindsight, I think it says a lot about me yeah. that when I really could have just been killed because I honestly, if yeah. somebody been walking down the sidewalk, I could have killed them, you know, just a slightly different angle. And we would have gone out into traffic and it was like one of those rushing traffic. Like it wasn't a highway, but it was like a four lane yeah. going through a town. I mean, I really could have been injured, but that my only thought yeah. was, is Alex going to be pissed? So, but th but um, this is just like, here's a funny thing that happened to me. Yeah. And I think I slightly, I think maybe I won the slam because I managed to elevate it out of, you know, something bad happened, yeah. something funny happened, um, into just enough of an arc about myself to like, to land it. But I don't think I could have sustained it with that story mm -hmm. for 10, 12 minutes. I do have to ask you about fire dancing. <laughs> okay. I was not expecting you to say that next. I, okay. you know, I, I feel like. You... I was just practicing last night for three hours. Oh, so this is still a going concern. <laughs> well, I recently got back into it because my son, I, I dropped out a little when my son was yeah. born and he just turned seven, um, like a few months ago. And I was like, it's time to get a little piece of me back. So. <laughs> so your parents were doctors or you came yeah. from a family of doctors. <laughs> I know. <laughs> trying to. Rural so Alabama. You want to be a filmmaker. Where does that where does that slot into the narrative so, of your life? I moved to New York City and I stay. I think you know this wait, as a New York. Wait, you learned after you started doing it after moving to New York. Oh yeah. Okay. I just I did it. It just sounds seems like a thing you like learned in the woods. You would think so, yeah. but no. Um, so no, I moved here and I sort of I was so lucky. I think that like in order to make it in New York, you have to sort of find your tribe pretty yeah. quickly. That's one yeah. of my theories. Or else you're just not going to make it without a tribe. Yeah. And so I was so lucky. And within the first two years, I found two tribes. Your tribe was Burning Man, wasn't it? It truly was. So one was, of course, the moth community. And the other was Burning Man. You found your so tribe on the playa. I found my tribe. Did you have you been? You're, <laughs> no, 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 You're no, talking no, no. so like a burger. You're no, like, you have no, 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 no. language. <laughs> um, yeah. You're like, no. But yeah, I did. So I fell in. My first job when I moved here was like a, like a crazy dot com that blew up in the dot com yeah. meltdown. And um, so... One of my coworkers became my friend and then my boyfriend and he and his friends were all going to go. And so right after we dated, he went for the first time yeah. and I was like, what? And he came back with like painted blue, like he had like all this blue behind his ears. It was like really weird. He but, found but, himself. But he showed me how he found himself. He was just like, he was from Virginia, yeah. like a little Southern boy. And he was showing me the pictures and I was like, what? Because it wasn't like, yeah. like just like the large scale art. I was pretty blown away. 
we started going to parties in New York, and people would be like fire dancing and stuff at the parties because it was back when there'd be like a giant warehouse party yeah, yeah, in yeah. Dumbo, yep, you know, now yep. where with like your 30 foot ceilings, everything's brick. So it was actually fairly like I could look back safe, even though it was like. Yeah, as far so, as indoor fire dancing goes. Right. Yeah, yeah, and they're, yeah. they're up so there like on a weird bar, concrete but... stage. Yeah. And so I was always so intrigued yeah. with the fire dancers. And so. For, I became really close friends with this group of people that were went a couple of years, and they kept trying to get me to go. And I was like, so not my thing. You guys are like, have fun. Love you to death. Yeah. The second year they all went off, which was like uh, 2001 Burning Man, I stayed home to take care of like this giant, crazy rambling house in Carroll Gardens where most of us lived at some point. I was like, I'll feed the cats. Yeah. I'll take care of things. Bye-bye. Have a good time. Bye-bye. And so by the third year of knowing them, essentially I went to Burning Man to prove to them I wouldn't like it, so they would shut up. And then, of course, yeah. fell madly in love with it between the arms. And one of the things I really love was the fire dancers. And at that Burning Man, a really close friend of mine, Nathaniel, he like looked out of and put his arm around me in this like way that, and said, "See that? We're going to learn to do that." And like honestly, if you'd ever met me, you would never think that I was going to learn to do that. I'm famous among my friends for having tripped over my own feet and knocked mm-hmm. myself unconscious on the sidewalk once, or for driving a car off a cliff. Oh, exactly. See, you understand <laughs> me. Okay. And so I was like, no, but I think that Nathaniel picked me because I'm a little type A and he knew that I would somehow figure out now yeah. you can take fire spinning lessons in New York. Like it's like, it's really a yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. but at the time you couldn't. And so we found this woman, Cassandra, who's amazing. And she was like one of the you know best fight. She was one of the women at the parties on the stage. And we we're like, can we, you know, give you 50 bucks and would you teach us a lesson? And that was how it was. It was like an artisan craft that got passed down. You had to know someone and they would show you how to do it. And I just fell in with a crew and started doing it it was a little baptism by fire the next year I don't literally oh my god i can't believe i said that but um <laughs> yeah, yeah the next year i think this is funny i wonder if they'll kill me for telling the story but cassandra and um, her then boyfriend ben um into the microphone they were a part of the conclave which is the giant fire show where it's like that thousands of fire performers it's the biggest fire show in the world in front of like fifty thousand at the time people who came and they got into this – it was like a slot. It was like having a rent control apartment, having a slot in that show. Uh-huh. And they had the New York slot. Okay. Uh, you couldn't let go, right? Because yeah. you never get yeah, it back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so they had the huge fight with their fire troop, you know, as I guess is what to happen. And so they were like, oh, my God, we still have to put in a show. So kind of unbeknownst, they took their entire like, beginner fire spinning class. Because at this point, I convinced we'd gotten them wow. to do a class. And we just like, you know, having lit up not a lot of times, yeah. we're like in the big fire show at Burning Man. You went straight from the slam to the main stage. We basically did. Yes, exactly. And so we were out there. And in a situation like that, you're either going to just die and run away or you're going to find a way to rise to your own occasion. And then it's just so magical being in a situation like that, surrounded by all those people. And I, I fell in love with it. And it was just like also as the moth, we were building it up over the years. You need – it was nice to have a different outlet. Like there's just like fire dancing. It's just – it brings a whole – it's like a whole other part of my brain. And yeah. so sometimes it's meditative. You know, it's like you go. And so it was something where you might have a hard day. We might have worked 16 hours a day before and things were like tough. But you know, we were struggling with some show or to get some venue we wanted or whatever it would be in the old days. I mean it's still true now. And if you could go out with your fire poi and if you could learn a new trick you didn't know before, it was something. For you, <laughs> blowing off steam is juggling fire. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely like spinning things around. It's harder and harder now. I mean, like, rightfully so. They've really cracked down, like the fire yeah. codes in New yeah. York. Even like in the days right after 9-11, it wasn't so extreme. But now it's gotten – there's also there's just increasingly as the city's built up, there's less and less places. Yeah. Like one of the places we used to practice was down on the Williamsburg waterfront. And there were like the – 
foundations from the old factories mm-hmm. that were right mm-hmm. on the water. And you could just, I mean, technically, I guess we were trespassing Whoops laws. But anyway, you would I, crawl in. But nobody cared. Nobody cared. Long past. And you know, it's like a football si- field sized chunk yeah. of concrete. So safe. In the worst case, I used to joke, someone would just jump in the river if they, you wouldn't want to. But if, they, <laughs> if, they if there was really fire. a situation. But, you know. Yeah. And we would just like practice all night. Now that's, of course, where the $10,000 a month two-bedroom apartments yeah. are. So it's tougher. But recently there's been there's this woman, Tara, who's brilliant, and she has a legal space in Bushwick that she worked with a, with a F- fire department here, and it's a legal space, and it's wonderful. And so suddenly, this is what got me back into it, there was a place where, you know, as a mom and a responsible person running a cultural institution, where I could go and legally light things on fire without worried about the fire department showing up and having some issue. So there was a real opportunity to start doing it again. Aside from being a stress relief, do you feel like there's a way in which fire dancing has, has prepped you for the moth? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, it definitely is one of those things where... You know, I think the way we interact with a crowd as fire dancers, like, it's funny, I've actually never, this is very interesting, you're you're being like a moth director right now, drawing something mm-hmm. out about me that I didn't mm-hmm. know about myself. Um, because one of the things, everyone who, like, people who fight your spin, you know, people have their own thing, and my thing is yep. interacting with a crowd. Yeah. Like, I'll go up down front with them and, like, do a little fire wheel in front of them. Sometimes, like, when it's my close friends. I like to bring them up and have them stand in front of me, and I spin the fire around them. This it's is really like loud. the fire dancing version of like crowd work, like yes, Don, exactly. Don Rickles. Exactly, because <laughs> um, I like people to have that experience yeah. of having the crowd swirl around. There's, it's so hypnotic and beautiful. Um, or I'll sit, you know, like Indian, just Indian style, in front of like a child who might be in the front row someplace and play, yeah. like very close, like safe, but we're just where they can see it, and it's like they're so close. And I remember Ben, who was one of my early teachers, he was like, "That's your thing, that interacting with a crowd." Mm. And pulling other pe- people in and letting yeah. them experience it viscerally, but in a safe way, that's going to be your thing. Yeah. And I feel like that's exactly what the moth is, right? Yeah. It's like pulling the audience in, having them feel like making it a dialogue between you and the audience and not just, I'm not just off, not looking at them, not making eye contact, just doing some pretty whirl. I try to be up in the front row, looking at them, seeing how they're reacting, seeing what they like, and then basing what I'm doing around what they're doing. But it's also this idea of having a thing, similar when you're a musician, it's similar when you're you know, a comedian, like the cadence the delivery is so important to a comedian. And that's, I assume that that's part of your job and part of everybody's job on the staff who are working with these people doing these stories is figuring out what everyone's thing is. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You know, like so that everyone, because even though everyone's, you know, doing in some ways the same thing, like lighting, yeah. a very limited set of apparatuses on yeah, fire, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's also like what makes it special and magical is how much of yourself you bring to it. That's one of the interesting things about the moth. It sounds like you, you describing what it was in 2002 versus now. There's a lot more people working there. It's much bigger. You've got a bigger platform. You've got podcasts and books. And maybe some of the process for actually getting stories out of people are a little bit different. But at the end of the day, all of the ingredients are exactly the same. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. People always like, what has changed? And I would say, like, the more things change, the more they stay yeah. the same. And we are all constantly learning, growing you know, trying new things, but the core principles of it haven't changed. And they don't change when you, like when we've tried, can we go through different media? Like there's, you know, videos online and there's um, the, where the podcast, the radio show, the book, um, all of it, what stays the same is like the single person telling a story in a simple way and always the live audience being a part of it. You know, the shows are recorded live. Even if you're listening to the podcast, you hear the live audience. Mm. The videos are never like just reshot. It's always the person you, where you hear the sound of the audience. Um, and like even the book, I mean, the book was edited from transcripts of the live and it was edited in a way that I hope at least preserved the voice. 
and like yeah. you hear the voice in your head as opposed to there are a lot of people with the book who they just want us to rewrite the stories for the book and that felt really a moth to us and when we finally agreed to do a book it was when this someone came up with this idea i should say it's our literary agent daniel greenberg he wasn't our agent at the time he was just this nice agent that came to the moth a lot yeah and he was like but what Catherine? if you did this and yeah. we were like that's it and that made us want to kind of go into that realm that's a tricky thing right is this idea of not wanting to fall into a trap, not wanting to fall into the, the cliches and the tropes and not wanting to have too established of an idea of what a moth story is. But at the same time, there's the, I don't know if fear is even the right word, but there, there's certainly the concern that if you change any key ingredient, but it could completely ruin the end result. Yeah, and it definitely can. You know, that's the tricky thing is we're always just trying to you know figure out like how do you do new things and keep it yeah. fresh. Like we want to keep surprising our audience. Um, and how do you do that while also preserving the heart of what we're trying to do? And you feel like you're still able to do that? I do. I mean, I hope so. Still feels new to you? It does, actually. And you're not sick of stories? I'm not. The day that I am is the day someone else gets my job. Because somebody should, who has, whoever has my job should be someone who can never get enough of stories. There you go, those Catherine Burns. Thank you so much to her for taking the time to do that. Really enjoyed that conversation. You probably noticed at one point that the conversation took a bit of an abrupt turn. I knew that when I was going to talk to her that I really, really want to ask her about the fire juggling thing. So I'm glad we're able to shoehorn that in. And uh, I think, you know, we, we did a, a pretty pretty decent job relating it back to the whole storytelling thing. Uh, she's uh, very good at, at connecting the dots, as, as one would hope one would be after having worked at The Moth for so many years. Thank you so much to her for doing that. Thanks to Meryl for setting that up. Obviously, The Moth you can find on uh, finer podcast purveyors everywhere or you can go to themoth.org or you can check out uh, the new book edited by Catherine with the third by Neil Gaiman it's called The Moth Presents All These Wonders True Stories About Facing the Unknown Uh, if you enjoyed the conversation please consider rating us on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts we've got a couple of bucks to throw our way we would appreciate it as well we have a a Patreon you can send us feedback it's rolcast at gmail.com follow us on Tumblr that's rolcast.tumblr.com that's the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information like us on Facebook and I think that's about all I got this week so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-A-Y-L. 